This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of our special series, A Seat at the Table, I'm joined today by a fellow podcaster, and we're going to be going through the life, career, and legacy of a cabinet member who you may or may not have heard about. But before we get started, I wanted to introduce my special guest. My special guest today is Steve from the Speak Seize podcast. Steve, thank you so much for being here. Jerry, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. I normally uh, talk about very silly things, so it's nice to talk about something that's a little bit more astute and serious. Well, there are occasionally some silly things that pop up in presidential history as well. So. Oh, yeah. And I'll try my best to highlight them also. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, before we get started, Steve, would you mind telling the audience about your podcast, just sure. in case they haven't um, encountered you yet? and Around the release of this episode, I will also mm-hmm. be sharing information about your podcast on social media. Wonderful. So that way our audience, once they get done with this episode, can go and check you out. Sure. So uh, my name is Steve Glissman. I'm the host of The Speaksy Show. Um, it's a podcast about the history and stories behind the words and phrases we read and speak every day. We're looking, I wanted to make a pun. So I had, so Speaksies is the best that we could come up with. So is it good? Is it bad? I'm not sure, but We've done over 150 episodes, so we've pushed through that issue of thing. So on the show, we just look for for words and phrases and find some of the stories behind them. And as you know from studying the presidents, that history sometimes you wouldn't believe it was real unless it was. You know, the truth is much better than fiction often. So I wanted to give you a couple examples of words and phrases that come from presidents real quick, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So, so have you ever heard the term dark horse? to discuss somebody who is a dark horse. Well, that actually comes from James K. Polk, the 11th president, who, like you, is from North Carolina. So shout out to to North Carolina. And you are in North Carolina still, correct? I am, and I've actually been to the birthplace site, which is in Pineville on the other side of Charlotte for me. Very good, very good. I I probably should have cleared that with you. You used to live in North Carolina before I made a big reference about it. So you didn't say, no, I hate that place now. I've moved on. So that's good that you're still there for many reasons. But maybe my favorite one um, that's come from a president is the term big mouth. So you know the the use of big mouth to describe someone who talks way too much. Absolutely. Kind of like I'm doing right now. (laughs) So that actually is drawn from the assassination of President James Garfield. Really? Yes. I did not know that. Yeah. So James Garfield um, was assassinated by a man by the name of Charles Gateau. He was somebody that was mentally ill. His life is very interesting from almost like an anti-biography of like what not to do in life. I will give him a little bit of credit that his wife wanted a divorce from him. And to ensure that she got it, he had an uh, 
a, a liaison with a prostitute and documented it. So in a weird way, he was kind of a gentleman, but you know, I think that gives you a little insight into the way that his, his brain functioned. Anyway, he um, was mad at James Garfield for not getting a, a, receiving a consulship from him. In his deluded mind, he thought he would he deserved one, and he also thought he would be a hero by putting Chester A. Arthur into office. So um, he assassinated James Garfield, shot him. Mr. Garf or President Garfield passed a few months later from his injuries. But the term "big mouth" actually became um, into the popular consciousness because of the trial of Charles Guiteau. During his trial, uh, Charles Guiteau, keeping with like his life and history to date would yell at the judge, repeatedly calling the judge a big mouth. Wow. So I'm not an attorney. I've never been on trial for murder, but I would assume that calling the judge a big mouth is probably not going to help your case, but so much. That, that's not the legal strategy that I would take. No, no. So anyway, so the history of words and phrases is very interesting. And um, after you listen to the Presidency's podcast, please listen to the Speaksy Show. You can find us on YouTube. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and whatever new thing will be invented over the next few weeks. Well, and thank you, Steve. That was fascinating. I, and I hadn't heard that Big Mouth had a presidential history connection. Yeah. And that was a nice preview of what's to come for presidencies. At some point, we will get to Polk and Garfield and Arthur. Yeah. But that's, that's really a good preview. So thank you so much for sharing that. You're very welcome. And if you don't mind, Jerry, I have one question I want to ask you before we get going. And this Absolutely. is now that I've confirmed you're still in North Carolina and yeah. still in the Charlotte area. I ask everyone this. Have you ever met Ric Flair? I have not met him, okay. but we were out at a restaurant one time and did see him. Okay, good. I, fa I think you have to see him at some point during your time in Charlotte or you'll be asked to leave the area. Like there's somewhere like on your your records, you have to know that, that you're not a true resident of Charlotte if you don't have some sort of encounter with them. So I'm very glad that you did get a chance. It's definitely on the Charlottean bucket list. You've got yes. to do it. Otherwise, you know, if you don't see him out and about, you're just sitting at home. Yeah. That's a good that's a good way to make sure you have it. They there should be some sort of exercise thing with that. Like, you know, if you're not seeing Ric Flair once a month. You need to act, you need to be getting more steps or something like that. <laughs> I love it. It's one of the squares on the Charlotte bingo card. Mm. Excellent. Well, are you ready to learn who our cabinet member that we're going to be discussing is? I am very excited to learn who it is going to be. And so, as is typical on the special series, I have not shared with Steve who we are going to be discussing. So he is learning now that we are talking about. Levi Lincoln Sr. Oh. So, Steve, have you heard of Levi Lincoln Sr. before? I heard of him earlier this week when I checked out Thomas Jefferson's cabinet and was hoping for Aaron Burr. I was putting it down. I was like, <laughs> maybe I'll get an Aaron Burr. My daughter is 13, so the Hamilton soundtrack is playing in my house or in my head all the time. But <laughs> I'm very excited to learn more about Levi Lincoln Sr., Absolutely. So with that said, let's go ahead and get started. So Levi Lincoln Sr., and we'll find out why we designate him as senior in a bit. Levi Lincoln Sr. was born on May 15th, 1749 in Hingham, Massachusetts. He was the son of Enoch Lincoln and Rachel Fearing Lincoln. 
So as is the case with many of the folks that we talked about at this point in American history, we don't really know much about his early life. It wasn't really seen as something important to record or, mm-hmm. or to keep documents about. But we do know that he began his education in the common schools. And he was apprenticed to a blacksmith at one point. But it quickly became clear that his interests were leading him elsewhere. And so the choice was between becoming a blacksmith and going to Harvard. And mm-hmm. he ended up going to Harvard. He graduated from there in 1772. And then started studying law under Joseph Hawley, who was a lawyer in Northampton. Now, this education, you know, he's starting to make his way in life, Mm -hmm. but this education would be put on hold with the news of the battles of Lexington and Concord. So Lincoln volunteered, like many young men at the time in the area, he volunteered for a militia unit in 1775 and marched with them to Cambridge, where they participated in the siege of British-occupied Boston. And that was the end of his military career. Hmm. It was a short one. After he was done with his tour of duty with the militia, he left and returned to his legal studies in Northampton. That year, Lincoln passed the bar and established his own practice in Worcester later in 1775. Thankfully for Lincoln, this was the perfect time and location for him to establish a law practice as most of the lawyers who had been in Worcester were loyalists. And so when the revolution began, they fled behind the British lines in Boston. But of course, even with the war going on, there was still legal business that needed to be done. And so it was the perfect time, the perfect place for Lincoln to get a start. Now, 1775 would also see Lincoln take up the roles of clerk of the court and probate judge for Worcester County, and he would remain in these posts until 1781. In 1779, he was elected to the state convention, which drafted the Massachusetts state constitution. And that same year, he was also empowered by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to prosecute its claims against the estates of various loyalists. So very early on, we see him starting to take up these roles in public service and to start to establish himself as a lawyer with the Commonwealth of Massachusetts being a big client for him. I like that his career started with that choice that I don't think anyone really has anymore of being, you know, no one, I don't think anyone who's considering to apply to Harvard nowadays sits down and goes, all right, blacksmith or Harvard. But (laughs) now that seems strange. But back then that made sense because that's probably a a pretty solid, being a blacksmith is a, a, a a great profession to have. In 1749. But Absolutely. Just, Very just lucrative. Because, yeah. But maybe there's some guy that's ready to apply to Harvard, then he watches a bunch of Forged and Fires on the History Channel. And like, you know what? Maybe there's some other options out here for me than the law. But that's just me. That's I, just I'm, I'm going in this direction. Yeah. But yeah, Levi Lincoln decided to go, as we've seen with so many cabinet members in the series, the other way. But it would have been an interesting trajectory for him to take blacksmithing and see if yeah. that would get him to the cabinet. But yeah, but there's that's, an alternate history somewhere. <laughs> that's a path. That's yeah. an alternate path that he didn't take. Yep. But yeah, so and it's interesting. You know, he really throws himself into the legal practice and to getting involved in politics and in public service and. 
this continues. You know, this is the start of a trend in Lincoln's life. Mm -hmm. And so with his move to Wooster, Lincoln acquired a large tract of land, which would be perfect for supporting a family once he was ready to take that step. But he took a few years, you know, he he really threw himself into his work, it seems. Mm -hmm. But finally, in 1781, he was about either 31 or 32. I wasn't able to find the exact date of Mm -hmm. when this happened, but he was 31 or 32. And that year, he married Martha Waldo, who was either 19 or 20 at the time. Hmm. So Levi and Martha would have 10 children together, though, unfortunately, as we've seen, With other cabinet members, child mortality was pretty common and high at the time. Three of their children died young, but the other seven would live to adulthood. And now we get to why he is senior, because his eldest son was named Levi Lincoln Jr. And we'll talk more about Jr. as well as a younger son named Enoch after Senior's father in a bit. All right. 1781 was a pivotal year for the United States with the Battle of Yorktown, but it also marked the beginning of a case, which would be the first key case in Lincoln's legal career. So this case involved a person named, and if my pronunciation is off, my apologies, but this was a person named Quark Walter, was also known as Quaku or Quark Walker, who was an individual who was born into slavery in Massachusetts in 1753. He was enslaved by the Caldwell family initially, and James Caldwell, the the father, the husband, had promised Walker his freedom by the time he turned 25. But when James died, his widow renewed the promise, but she brought up the manumission date up to the age of 21. Hmm. So the promise for Walker now was that When you turn 21, you will be free. Mm -hmm. The only problem with this is that Mrs. Caldwell remarried to Nathaniel Jennison. And after a few years together, she passed away in 1772, which was a couple of years prior to Walker becoming 21, reaching the age of 21. And thus, when he reached the specified age, Jennison refused to free him. Hmm. And so... Quack Walker thus remained in enslavement for a few more years until in 1781, at the age of 28, he finally ran away. However, Jennison managed to recapture Walker and beat him severely as punishment. Yeah, really wonderful guy here. Yeah. Jennison was subsequently arrested for assault and battery against Walker and he was indicted on those charges in September 1781. Now, Walker used this opportunity to make a case for his freedom, arguing that the state constitution, which was put into place in 1780, which was the same one that Levi Lincoln had worked on, in the state constitution, it asserted that, quote, all men are born free and equal, and that thus, by proclaiming that in the state constitution, that had thus outlawed slavery in Massachusetts. Hmm. Levi Lincoln was brought on as one of the lawyers in the case and based his arguments on behalf of Walker's freedom on natural law and God's law. And so thus, when the case came before the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, the Chief Justice of that court, William Cushing, instructed the jury that, in his opinion, slavery was no longer legal in the state. And thus, Jennison's arguments that Walker was a runaway slave 
were irrelevant. Hmm. Though it would take time as the ruling depended on the enslaved individuals taking action to secure their freedom, by the time of the 1790 census, there were no enslaved individuals reported in Massachusetts. And this case is the start of that. This is where we have, by law, slavery Mm -hmm. is abolished in Massachusetts. Great. So we get to see uh, Levi Lincoln really planting the seed of that. And I think it's one of the things that I'm sure that you've seen that's uh, an interesting, kind of like an inherent contradiction with all the founding fathers of the words that they use of people being free and equal, yet still owning slaves. And it's, you know, they don't see the irony in it, but it's almost like, but at the same time, they've planted the seed that freedom will grow from later, you know, many years down the road. And I think this is another, sounds like another example of that with what Levi Lincoln did here. Absolutely. And and that is something that we explore in presidencies, mm-hmm. both in the special series as well as in the narrative series. And, you know, we'll be talking about much more as we go along. You really see that there is a, a spectrum of understanding what that free and equal means. Right. Right. You know, there are people at the time who Yes. Okay. This this really means everybody. This can't right. just mean. But then you've got the other spectrum where there's this inherent racism and prejudice and dehumanizing of people who are enslaved or mm-hmm. people who are different than you. It reflects that we're talking about people here. You know, there isn't just one clear cut. This is what everybody thought. And that's also what we try and get to in presidencies is an understanding that these were yeah. people just like us. You know, most people don't agree on everything nowadays on any issue. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of tough to take a light turn out of slavery, but I'm going to try to help us just a little bit. So I found um, a few years ago a, a term that I was very surprised that is drawn, comes back to act, not just slavery, but American slavery. And it's the term cakewalk. Hmm. So a cakewalk, you know, you describe something that's easy to do. It's a cakewalk. And that actually came from balls that would be held by the slaves in which they would um, have, have a party. And one of the things that would be done was to imitate the slave masters and to walk and to present themselves like them and, and to mock them. And the winner would get a cake. And that is actually where the term cakewalk came from. And that surprised me so much. We covered that in the sec- very second episode of our show that we ever did. And it threw me off so much that we actually had to re-record the episode because I'm, you know, we're here, we're talking about things. And then out of nowhere, slavery arrives. And I'm like, okay, I'm not sure how comfortable I am discussing this immediately. But the world is strange. People, uh, like, as you said, we're all, n- none of us are perfect. And there's those contradictions that we all have. Absolutely. And and that's fascinating, you know, it's, and that's one thing that I really enjoy about your podcast is this exploration of the origin of the words and phrases that we use without thinking about where did this come from? What, mm-hmm. does, what was the original connotation of it? What did it originally mean? And, you know, as we see in president season, you know, we're talking about a lawyer here, words matter. Words yeah. are very important. Which words you use, which words you don't. And so it 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 is fascinating to to study and see how that becomes part of our 
legal structure, our governmental structure, and our society and as a whole. And just one last thing on cakewalk. While it is an interesting anecdote, I don't recommend it for dinner parties. I've tried it out before. And just in case you want a situation to make the room get real quiet quickly. Just start talking about the origin of cakewalk. Of, yeah, and once you, once the slavery gets discussed, it's a good way to get out of something also. Like if you're, like, if you're not sure if you want to stay at that party and, you know, make an exit quickly. But things aren't going so well. Yeah. Here's the card you play. Yeah, here's how <laughs> we finish this off quickly. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so and to kind of take us back to Lincoln and from this case, but it, it's interesting, you know, this is a very pivotal case in the history of the state of Massachusetts and in American history. And, you know, here we go. We've got Lincoln right in the middle of it. But this is where things kind of slow down a little bit for Lincoln because, you know, we've been on this kind of rapid rise, but it actually takes a bit for Lincoln to rise any further in politics. He was elected to the Confederation Congress in 1781, but he declined to serve in that body. And that was part of the problem with the government under the Articles of Confederation. Lincoln definitely wasn't the only one who declined to serve and they had trouble finding people who would serve in Congress because it was just seen as being a waste of time. All the action was really happening in the states versus this loose confederation structure. So Lincoln was like, no, I've got better things to do. But eventually that would go away. The Constitutional Convention would happen. The new government under the Constitution would come into effect with stronger federal structures for the government. And as this happened, so too new political factions started to form. And Lincoln actually initially identified as a federalist, but he slowly, as the 1790s went on, drifted over to the Democratic-Republican faction, which was the party of Jefferson and James Madison. He attempted to run for the U.S. House of Representatives seat held by Federalist candidate Dwight Foster in the 1790s. And he actually attempted numerous times, but kept falling short in the vote count. He came so close in 1794, but Foster still beat Lincoln by 59 votes. Mm. But after that, you know, that was kind of the closest that he came. And then after that, the vote count starts to widen again. Interesting. Yeah, and and you know it's it's interesting because we we hear and we see so many instances of oh well you know they beat out the incumbent right but Lincoln nope he kept trying and just it wasn't happening. You know what's interesting about that is I during my uh, readings of of people in the founding period here you don't see and please tell me if I'm wrong or if you see more of this but you don't see many people kind of going from the the strong Federalists to the Jefferson, you know, Democratic, Republic, weak Federalist sort of view. You don't see, people seem to kind of pick their camps whether they realized it or not. So it's interesting to see him kind of moving from one camp to the other. Do you see that often in, in your studies? Have you come across that? So in the 1790s, it happens occasionally, but it's really more when the Democratic Republicans become kind of the dominant party, when the Federalists, during the War of 1812, and it already started in the 1800s. You start mm -hmm. to see some folks like John Quincy Adams is a, right. a pretty well-known example of somebody who was a Federalist who ended up mm -hmm. joining the 
Democratic Republican camp. But it's really once you get to the War of 1812, and it's pretty clear that the Federalist Party is not going to be a nationally viable party anymore, that mm-hmm. you start to see people who, okay, I really do want to be involved in politics. I don't just I don't want to be like Levi Lincoln and be the losing candidate all the time. And so they start to drift over to the Democratic Republicans. But at this time, you you see some instances of that. But by and large, as it's developing, you really have either people who are completely committed to the Federalists, mm-hmm. completely committed to the Democratic Republicans, and then the folks that just aren't really ready to commit yet, but ultimately they go one way or the other. Right. But it is interesting that, you know, he he really, he was like, okay, I'm signing up as a Federalist, and then, no, this this just isn't. He, he got to the party and decided, I'm, I'm going to talk about the origin of the word cakewalk and go to yeah, the other party. That's right. That's probably how he got <laughs> thrown out. He's like, I want exactly. to make sure these Federalists know where I stand. So let me tell this <laughs> terrible story. Exactly. <laughs> And so with this, it wouldn't be until 1796 that Lincoln would be elected to a seat. And this was actually in the uh, Massachusetts State House. So he had tried for the the National House of Representatives, wasn't working out. So he's like, okay, well, let's let's do a bit of a rethink. Let's try this step first. And so he was able to get a seat in the Massachusetts State House of Representatives. And that the following year, he was elected both to that state house seat, but also to the state Senate. And so, you know, he had to choose one or the other, and naturally he chose the state Senate. Hmm. And he would serve in that body for two years before he was chosen to assume the seat and fill out the remaining term of his previous opponent, Dwight Foster, upon his resignation from the U.S. House of Representatives. And so this is something that we do see Quite often, you know, you've got somebody who starts as a representative and then they get bumped up to the U.S. Senate. And so then you have to kind of backfill that House seat. And so Lincoln was able to benefit from that. And he finally got rid of Dwight Foster because that guy was just a, a burr in his shoe for a long time. Couldn't get exactly. him out of his way. So good job. Exactly. So finally got him out of the way, got him out of the seat and was able to take it. And so Lincoln was elected to a full term in December 1800. Unfortunately for Lincoln, it actually took a few votes before he won that election. For some reason, Levi Lincoln is having problems with getting elected to the the U.S. House of Representatives. Hmm. And the thing was, so he was the top vote getter, but Massachusetts state law at the time said that the winning candidate had to win a majority of the vote, not just a plurality. So even though he was the top vote getter, there were enough other candidates who were getting enough votes that he was denied that 50% and one more vote to get him over the top. So it took a few rounds, but he was finally able to get the majority. He was finally able to get the seat on a permanent basis. And so he took up his seat in the House to fill the rest of Foster's term on December 15th, 1800. Good. Now, this seat that he had been working towards for the better part of a decade, you know, he had been trying to get here so hard. Yeah. He barely got it warmed up. Then the president-elect comes and says, Lincoln, 
I'd like you to join my cabinet. Hmm. I think, though, at least that he was able to beat Dwight Foster. I think that, you know, maybe that's the, the grace in it, is he finally was able to take out Dwight Foster and could move on. And, you know, maybe at that point it didn't matter being in the seat, just getting finally get one over on Dwight Foster. But that's the way I look at it. I'm a, I'm a petty, vindictive person, as you can tell. <laughs> and that was, I, I'm just glad he was able to finally get one over on Dwight. I mean, you do have to picture him when he's in the House chamber and he sees the seat and walks mm-hmm. up to it slowly and then sits down and just has this satisfied look on his face. Yeah. And he just takes a moment and then, okay, this is done. What's next? <laughs> yep. He does like a Kevin Spacey knock-knock with his ring, and then somebody from Jefferson shows up to talk. Exactly. Exactly. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, you know, here we've got the president-elect coming to him because Lincoln, in addition to having a good reputation as a lawyer, was also an asset to the administration due to his coming from Massachusetts. Traditionally, the Democratic-Republicans really hadn't had strong support in New England, and that had been something that Jefferson and Madison had tried to work on for years, but they were starting to make some inroads, but there was still work to be done. And so having Lincoln in the cabinet, along with Secretary of War Henry Dearborn and Postmaster General Gideon Granger, having these three folks from New England to consult about party matters in that region would provide valuable insight to Jefferson and other Democratic-Republican leaders in Washington. So this was strategic not just because of what Lincoln could bring to the role, but what Lincoln could bring in terms of political knowledge and expertise and knowing what the situation was on the ground. Hmm. As Lincoln's cabinet colleague, Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin described the new, when he was describing the new attorney general, he described Lincoln, quote, Mr. Lincoln is a good lawyer, a fine scholar, a man of great discretion and sound judgment, and of the mildest and most amiable manners. He has never, I should think from his manners, been out of his own state, or mixed much with the world, except on business. He has a great weight of character to the eastward with both parties. So, I mean, that's pretty high praise from Albert Gallatin. Heck yeah. yeah. And Dwight Foster's, you know, no bitterness against Dwight came up. Because if I was in his shoes, that would be one thing. You know, he's pretty good character, focused on business, but there's this exception. He can't get Dwight Foster out of his mind. So <laughs> good for good job, Levi Lincoln, for being a professional, not having that get, get in your letter of recommendation. Absolutely. So this is the point of the episode that I have to remind everyone that the Office of Attorney General in the early Republic was quite different from what we think of the Post nowadays. And this was for a few reasons. At the time, it was actually a part-time position. It wasn't really a full-time, you're 
attorney general. And part of that was that there was no state, there was no justice department and there wouldn't be in Chile Grant administration. So that's mm. post-Civil War. Wow. So there's not really, there's no one that reports to the attorney general. There's not a department that the attorney general was in charge of. And so it was expected at the time, because this was a part-time post, that the attorney general would maintain a private practice in addition to their public posts. Because really the only things that the attorney general did at the time, they would argue cases before the Supreme Court that involved the federal government, Mm -hmm. but there wasn't really much happening at that level of the federal judiciary at that point. You know, there weren't that many cases going to the Supreme Court and especially involving the federal government. So there wasn't really much for the attorney general to do in that regard. The attorney general was also seen as kind of, it could be an advisory role beyond just legal matters, you know, of course, with legal matters for the federal administration, but also potentially for other matters. But that was really all that the attorney general did. Yeah. Maybe he hung out with the vice president a lot, too, because I know that's <laughs> the time also that the vice presidency is not looked upon very strongly. I remember how much that just drove John Adams out of his, his mind to be in that role. Exactly. But, well, and, and you can picture him going to the Senate chamber, going up to where the vice president was presiding and yeah. as the president of the Senate and just kind of saying there, OK, well, let's let's chit chat. And meanwhile, he's got an eye on Dwight Foster. Yeah, that's probably all it it's he needed another job to make sure he wasn't spending time thinking about what he was up to. So it was good that he had his private practice going to keep his mind off that. Exactly. Exactly. And so with this, since Lincoln had few responsibilities to start with, and Jefferson's intended Secretary of State, James Madison, was delayed in traveling from Montpelier as he was dealing with matters related to his father's death, the president asked Levi Lincoln to serve as an interim Secretary of State until Madison could make his way to the nation's capital and assume the post. There you go. And so Lincoln agreed to do this. He's like, yeah, you know, really, there's nothing on my desk. Nothing else to do. Yeah. Yeah. So... He served in that post until May 2nd, which was when Madison came to D.C. And as soon as Madison arrived in D.C., it seems that Lincoln left town and made his way back to Worcester. And indeed, he would spend most of his tenure as attorney general there rather than traveling back and forth to and from Washington as much as his other cabinet colleagues. And again, he didn't really have a department to supervise, and he had his legal practice back in Massachusetts. So he could really just do his work as attorney general from there unless he had to go to the Supreme Court. Yeah. You know, especially nowadays in the 21st century where telecommuting is something that many people do either part-time or full-time. You know, we see (laughs) this is one of the few instances in the early Republic where you have somebody telecommuting, but yeah. You know, Jefferson was okay with this, especially as he as Lincoln was working on the ground to build up the Democratic Republican faction in Worcester and in Massachusetts in general. So he was like, yeah, work from home, that's fine yeah. and oh by the way, if you can do something for our faction there, that would yeah. be great too. He was I guess it was more equine commuting than telecommuting, but I think telecommuting's catchier. And also, <laughs> you get Keep it on that Dwight Foster. Maybe that was why he pushed for it a little, little bit too. Of like, you know what? Uh, let's just make sure Foster's not getting up to anything. So, I, exactly. you know, if you need me, 
I'm, you know, I'm only 17 days away by message to, to show up. <laughs> exactly. I've, I've got one eye on my responsibilities as attorney general and yeah. one eye on that guy. That guy. And so Lincoln's tenure in the cabinet went, witnessed an ascendancy in Democratic Republicans winning offices through local and state elections in Massachusetts. So, you know, this was a time, this was a good time to kind of build the faction support in the state as well as in the area in and around Wooster. And Lincoln aided these efforts in 1801 when he founded the National Aegeus, which was a newspaper that was founded to promote the faction's arguments and to serve as a counterpoint to the numerous Federalist presses in the state. So by and large, there were more Federalist-leaning newspapers. And so here was mm -hmm. an attempt, okay, let's present the counterargument. And Lincoln would write back reports to President Jefferson on what was happening in the region. And he would also work to help coordinate efforts with national leaders. So it was good to have him on the ground as kind of this, this manager in the area. But this didn't mean that he didn't go to the Capitol at all. You know, he would occasionally travel to D.C. Indeed, the couple of months as interim Secretary of State would result in Lincoln being called to the witness stand in one of the key legal proceedings of the early republic. So when Jefferson took office and his new cabinet members took over from their Federalist predecessors, just like with anything, whenever you're taking over a new role, you have to sort out, okay, well, what's here? What's in the files? What remaining business do we have? What's in the inbox? What's coming through the mail? And for Lincoln, as interim Secretary of State, this meant finding a stack of commissions that had been approved by the Senate. So these offices, these folks had been nominated for, and the Senate had confirmed them. And these were basically their commissions, just telling them, you've been confirmed, the post is yours. They had been done up, they were ready to go, but they just hadn't been sent, they hadn't been delivered by the outgoing Secretary of State, John Marshall. And in part, that was because John Marshall was taking over a new role of his own as Chief Justice. Mm -hmm. But rather than having more federal offices filled with Federalists, President Jefferson ordered Lincoln to just hold on those commissions rather than delivering them. Yeah, let's, we, we don't, yeah. we, they're, they're good where they're at. Let's just yeah. leave them in, in that box. And then when Madison took the reins at state, Supposedly, the commissions were still there, and Jefferson ordered him to hold off on delivering them as well. And so some of the office holders, they had heard, hey, I was confirmed. Where's my commission? And one of these, William Marbury, along with a few others, got rather upset at the slight and filed suit in federal court against the federal government and, in particular, Secretary of State Madison to compel them to deliver the commissions. And when this case came before the Supreme Court, so this is one that the federal government is involved in, so Lincoln, as Attorney General, served as Madison's legal counsel, while former Attorney General Charles Lee represented Marbury. However, as Lincoln had also temporarily been in the interim role at state and directly involved in the commissions not being delivered, he would also find himself called as a witness by Lee. Lincoln, however, invoked the Fifth Amendment and his executive privilege in an attempt to avoid answering Lee's line of questioning until he had had a proper amount of time to examine and consider the questions. Mm -hmm. 
So here you've got him acting as a witness, but also using his knowledge of legal tactics to delay and try and figure out, okay, well, how do we, how do we wordsmith this? How do we make sure we don't get into trouble? And the court did grant him a temporary reprieve, but asserted that Lincoln, as he was under oath, would have to answer the questions. And so when the proceedings reconvened, Lincoln did answer most of Lee's questions. But the one that he would not answer was what had been done with the commissions, to which Lincoln just parried and simply said he wasn't sure that they had ever been given to Madison. I don't know what happened to them. I know they were there at one point. Yeah. I saw Uh, Dwight Foster walking around the hallway that one day, but that's all I remember about that. You you may want to call him in as a witness. Yeah. He may know what happened to them. That would have been awesome that if in the in the legacy of Marbury and Madison that it was written down that he tried to blame it on Dwight Foster. That would <laughs> that to me would be almost as consequential as what Marbury and Madison meant to the country was that Dwight Foster was somehow brought in due to Levi's bitterness. But I don't think that's true. You you heard it here, the conspiracy theory about the commissions. Yeah. <laughs> And as an opposition paper quipped about Lincoln's response to this question, quote, he was asked a simple question, but could not answer it until they gave it to him in writing. And then he made out to remember that he had forgot all about it. (laughs) (laughs) Which you just, I mean, this is lawyering at its best. I mean, this is. It's impressive, actually. He should have been, if there was a a mafia in In Massachusetts at the time, he would have been a good attorney for him. Absolutely. And so ultimately, though the court ruled that Marbury was due the commission, it did not feel that it had the authority to compel Madison to deliver the commission. However, this ruling is better known because it struck down a section of the Judiciary Act as unconstitutional. And this was the first instance of the Supreme Court exercising the power of judicial review And this was a game changer in the role of the court in the federal government. And so, you know, here we have Levi Lincoln again, one of these pivotal moments in American history, and he's right at the center of it. Yeah. Attorney General Lincoln would also play a role in one of the most prominent scandals at the time in American politics, the Yazoo Affair. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail. We actually have an episode of Presidencies that covers the Yazoo Mm -hmm. Affair in more depth. But to put it succinctly, due to bribes and undue influence on the Georgia state legislature, land in what is now modern-day Mississippi and Alabama, but at the time was referred to as the Yazoo Lands, which is where the name comes from, was sold to land speculators. But when the truth about the circumstances behind the sale came out, many of the folks in the state legislature were voted out in favor of candidates against the corrupt land sale. And so thus, this new legislature passed a bill invalidating the sale approved by the previous session. But this created a dispute in terms of land claims as the land speculators had already started selling lands to other buyers who weren't involved in this original corrupt bargain, while at the same time, the Georgia state legislature was awarding the same lands to other buyers. So you had these conflicting claims and there was so much unrest and what do we do here? Now, Congress had authorized three commissioners to be named by the president to resolve the issue, but the Adams administration came to an end before negotiations between the federal commissioners he had appointed and the commissioners appointed by the Georgia state government could begin. And so thus, 
as the incoming president, Jefferson appointed Lincoln, along with Secretary of State Madison and Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin, as the new federal commissioners. After negotiations with the Georgian commissioners, the drafted Articles of Agreement and Session were signed on April 24, 1802. Now, the terms of this agreement included Georgia's session of all the Western lands, again, most of modern-day Mississippi and Alabama, to the federal government in exchange for $1,250,000. With this agreement, one-tenth of the Yazoo lands were also set aside, quote, for the purpose of satisfying, quieting, or compensating any claims which may be made to the said lands or to any part thereof. And so this was seen as a win-win for everybody. It finally says that Georgia has no more rights to these lands. These are part of the Mississippi Territory, which is administered by the federal government. And also, if we have conflicting claims, we've got an option to be able to compensate and resolve those. Hmm. And so Madison, Gallatin, and Lincoln subsequently reported the Articles to Congress on February 16, 1803. And the federal commissioners recommended that claimants should, quote, be allowed to choose compensation either in the form of land or in money, not exceeding $5 million, to be derived from the sale of land in the Mississippi Territory. So they're saying, you know, beyond just this land that we set aside, let's go ahead and have some money at the ready. And if they just want to be done with it, they don't want to bother with land anymore, here you go. So Congress soon approved setting aside the 5 million acres to settle the claims, but this agreement did not did nothing to resolve the conflict and instead sparked a new debate at the federal level over whether the original claimants should be compensated anything, as well as whether the Georgia state government had the constitutional authority to unilaterally declare null and void a sale made in good faith. So there are a couple of things that are going on with this. And again, I refer folks to the episode on the Yazoo crisis and what ultimately settled the matter, which was the Supreme Court case in 1810 of Fletcher v. Peck, for more details on how this really gets resolved. But one aspect that I want to talk about here is that, you know, here we have Lincoln trying to find a way to really resolve this issue because ultimately it hindered progress. You know, the mm-hmm. the federal government and Jefferson in particular, he was all about the West. He wanted yeah. westward expansion. But until this was done, the Mississippi Territory couldn't develop because who knows what land is whose. Yeah. And so Lincoln played a key role in this. Very interesting, too, to think of just how much uh, area of the United States at that time like wasn't Underclaim. You know, we'll, we have the Louisiana Purchase coming up soon. We mm-hmm. see Aaron Burr heading out west, trying to do something that uh, you know Jefferson eventually uh, had him tried for treason regarding. But it's just one of those things. You all, I at least in my mind, I, I kind of put it together of like you know there were the thirteen colonies, and just the puzzle was put together after that. And it's just very interesting to look at things like this and just think how wide open things were and what the different possibilities. You know could be if things like this didn't go the way that they did. Absolutely. And, you know, there are so many nuances involved in it and so many, so many agendas going on that it really, there wasn't a guarantee that this was all going to work, that it was going to end up like this. And with this, so, you know, Lincoln 
had a role in this as attorney general, as being a representative of the the Jefferson administration. But he was also noted as a quote-unquote advisor for his fellow New Englander, Postmaster General Gideon Granger. Granger had a personal financial interest in the Yazoo lands and would ultimately benefit from the settlement. So he had his own money involved in this. And as we discussed in the Yazoo episode, you know, Granger would get criticized for this and would be seen as exerting undue influence on congressional leaders because, of course, he was in Washington as well and could get folks to the side. Hey, can we settle this? And so Lincoln was an advisor for him. And I'm not sure if this was just as a personal advisor or as legal, legal counsel. I wasn't able to confirm, but I thought it important to note since he was also part of the commission that had recommended settling these. But Lincoln also, and you just mentioned this, Steve, Lincoln also had a minor role to play in arguably the greatest triumph of the Jefferson administration, which was the Louisiana Purchase. And this one we'll go into more detail when we get to James Monroe and talk about him in this series. But in 1803, Monroe and U.S. Minister to France, Robert Livingston, successfully negotiated the purchase of the Louisiana colony from France for $15 million, which added 828,000 square miles of land to the U.S. That, however, had not been the charge given to Monroe and Livingston. Rather than this huge tract of land that stretched from the Gulf of Mexico to the modern-day Canadian border and encompassed most of the Great Plains, Monroe and Livingston were just supposed to purchase New Orleans. And that was to ensure that it was open to American shipping interests in the Old West, which depended on the port of New Orleans. And, you know, it, it was everything that was west of the Appalachian Mountains. That's, that was the easiest route of transport, and that was a key part of it. And so that's what they were supposed to do. Now, Jefferson had already been concerned about the constitutionality of the mission, and he had admitted as much to his cabinet. He's like, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that the federal government can acquire new territory. But the cabinet members were like, are you kidding me? We... We need this. We need to do this. We cannot, we can't guarantee that we'll keep the West if we don't have New Orleans. And so when Lincoln was asked for his opinion, he definitely lawyered up. He was like, okay, well, let's find some loophole that we can satiate Jefferson that this is constitutional. And so he sent Jefferson a memorandum outlining an indirect plan that can make the action legal. Rather than purchasing new lands, Maybe they could just get France to agree to extend the borders of the Mississippi Territory and the state of Georgia to incorporate these new lands. So we're not we're not buying new land. We're just extending our borders yeah. to where the new lands are. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's it's already existing. There's already a state of Georgia. There's already a Mississippi Territory. It's not anything new. It's just New to them. <laughs> Some good outside-the-box thinking. You gotta, exactly. It's a good way to look at it. Yeah. Exactly. But in this instance, President Jefferson did not take Lincoln's advice. And finally, he agreed. He's like, okay, I'm just going to drop the constitutional thing. We'll just ignore that. Let's just, let's just get this done. And ultimately, <laughs> the only one who really cared about the constitutionality of the Louisiana Purchase was Jefferson. Everybody else was like, of course, this is a no-brainer. Let's do this. 
Yeah, and, and I think that's something that Monroe. I know you're going to talk about him later. Doesn't get enough credit for. I think is his role exactly in that. And then also he grabbed Florida during his administration too. So exactly. You Side know, he, shout out to to James Monroe. <laughs> James Monroe, we see you. We're coming. Yeah. So though it didn't necessarily constitute a legal issue. Jefferson consulted Lincoln as well as other members of his cabinet in the process of drafting instructions for Meriwether Lewis as part of the planned expedition to explore these new lands to the West and to hopefully find a path to the Pacific Ocean. Lincoln was rather wary of the political risks that Jefferson was taking with the expedition because if this endeavor ultimately proved to be a failure, the opposition would attack the president for wasting great sums of money and resources. Thus, Lincoln urged Jefferson to impart upon Lewis the importance of achieving something, anything, even if it's just knowledge about the native peoples of the plains. You cannot come back empty-handed. We've got to be able to justify all that's been spent on this expedition. Meanwhile, you know, around this time, Lincoln was also participating in cabinet meetings and deliberations involving the war with Tripoli. Because at the beginning of Jefferson's term, Yusuf Karamanli, who was the Pasha of Tripoli, had declared war on the U.S. after his demand for a greater tribute to be paid to him in order to ensure that Tripolitan Corsairs would not attack U.S. merchant ships in the Mediterranean was denied. So, you know, he's like, you really want the shipping? You're going to have to pay me more. The Jefferson administration was like, nope, we're not doing that. And so he declared war. In the early stages of the conflict, As some of his other colleagues recommended taking aggressive naval action against Tripoli, Lincoln warned that constitutionally, only Congress could declare war. And at this point, Congress wasn't in session. So can we really send naval ships to attack Tripoli? He argued for ships to be sent to the area only to, quote, repel an attack on individual vessels. But after the repulse, may not proceed to destroy the enemy's vessels generally. So we'll send them over there. We'll say if a merchant ship's being attacked, they'll help them out, but they just can't pursue. They can't finish this. And President Jefferson did ultimately side with Lincoln in this discussion. Mm -hmm. By the next year, Lincoln, along with Gallatin and Dearborn, were pushing for a diplomatic settlement with Tripoli, which would include an initial tribute payment as well as an annual tribute. But Jefferson ultimately sided with Madison and Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith, who argued for continued naval action. During his tenure as Attorney General, Lincoln wasn't just a trusted advisor in terms of government business. On April 23, 1803, Jefferson sent Lincoln, as well as Secretary of War Dearborn, a copy of his Reflections on the Doctrines of Jesus. A few days later, on the 26th, Jefferson agreed to Lincoln's request to make a copy for him to keep. Now, despite his extensive correspondence, Jefferson was rather discreet about his religious beliefs, especially as they weren't in line with mainstream Christian thinking at the time. The fact that he sent Lincoln a copy at all much less that he allowed him to make a personal copy, knowing that his political enemies could have used that against him, reflects a great deal of trust and respect for Lincoln. So he is definitely, he is somebody that Jefferson has a great amount of respect for. Certainly. And Jefferson was a very just crafty, and I mean that as a compliment, individual. I mean, we see this in a lot of things he did, including keeping 
Levi Lincoln in Massachusetts to basically be his eyes uh, for what's going on with the Federalists up north to see what they're doing. So that that does put a a, a large amount of trust in him to Absolutely. share that. I never I never knew that before. That's that's very interesting. I think I 100% agree with you. That shows he must have really thought extremely highly of of him. Absolutely. Well, and and we definitely we see this as well because, you know, after nearly 4 years, you know, the first term is about to come to an end. Jefferson had been reelected to a second term. But on December 26, 1804, Attorney General Lincoln wrote to President Jefferson about his desire to resign at the end of the first term. Lincoln wrote, quote, The withdrawing myself from the arrangements of private life, especially from a young and numerous family in want of parental care and assistance in the course of their education, was viewed from the first as an inconvenience of so serious a nature as to exclude the idea of its long continuance. It is now four years since an attachment to the principles on which the federal government is administered connected me with its legislature, and nearly as long have I been particularly associated in its administration with characters from whom it has been esteemed a happiness to think and to act. It is from your goodness and the malignity of political enemies, from experiencing your friendship and confidence their abuse and distrust that my residence here has been extended to double the term at first intended, with a devotedness to the Republican principles of our federal government, with an unshaken confidence in those to whom the administration was committed, with a veneration for civil and religious liberty, truth and justice, with an honest wish for the prosperity of our country and to be useful in it, I came into office with these qualifications, I shall leave it to a successor possessing probably a greater quickness of conception and readiness of recollection than usually remains to the first stages of declining age. So at this point, Lincoln is starting to get older, mm-hmm. starting to reflect. He's still got his family, this large family that needs him. And he's saying, you know, I really believe I've you know, I was committed to the battle and I've stayed twice as long as I thought I was going to stay because of my commitment to that. But I'm getting older and I need to refocus on what's important to me. Yeah. And he had 10 kids. So we know one thing that was really important to him, especially <laughs> if he's traveling that much. So I exactly see that. I think it's a very magnanimous letter the, that he wrote there. And, you know, I'm in my mind, I'm, I'm going to believe that somehow Jefferson, who's known for holding a grudge, you know, he held that grudge against John Adams for a long time, maybe somehow helped Levi let go of the Dwight Foster grudge, um, which would be ironic, another irony in the life of, of Thomas Jefferson. But, you know, he could have been much more succinct in what he said to, to Jefferson. But I like that. That leaves a good impression. And again, he ended up with tag, tag kids, so... He, he, had, yeah. he had some work to do in a variety of ways. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, you know, you've got a picture Jefferson, you know, you see that with Jefferson with his retirement, you know, mm-hmm. wanting to enjoy the the family, wanting to enjoy the better things in life. So, you know, apparently he imparted that to Lincoln. You're getting older. Enjoy some things. So Jefferson, and we see this because Jefferson replied a couple of days later accepting the resignation, though he wrote, quote, it would have been my greatest happiness to have kept together to the end of my term our executive family. 
for our harmony and cordiality has really made us but as one family. Believing, too, that another four years will consolidate the basis on which we are building the political and physical happiness of our country, I did wish to see my associates sharing each in that honest fame and heartfelt satisfaction with which such an achievement must reward them. Yet, I am a father and have been a husband. I know the sacred duties which these relations impose, the feelings they inspire, and that they are not to be resisted by a warm heart. I yield, therefore, to your will. You carry with you my entire approbation of your official conduct, my thanks for your services, my regrets on losing them, and my affectionate friendship. And so with that, on March 3rd, 1805, Levi Lincoln Sr., at the age of 55, left the Jefferson administration. But even after returning home, Lincoln continued his correspondence with Jefferson, sharing with him political news from on the ground in Massachusetts. He also got back involved in state politics. So he wasn't necessarily going into a full retirement, but just wanted to be able to work closer to home. Yeah. So in 1806, Lincoln became a member of the Governor's Council of Massachusetts. And a year later, he was asked to join the ticket of the Democratic-Republican gubernatorial candidate, James Sullivan. Now, Sullivan had lost the 1806 election to incumbent Federalist Governor Caleb Strong by only 631 votes. And that was attributed to some Democratic-Republicans in the state being wary of him as a moderate. So the thought was, with Jefferson's trusted former attorney general as his lieutenant governor running mate, it was believed that Sullivan would be trusted more by the faction's voters. And indeed, that's how it played out. Because in an election cycle that proved to be a sweep for Democratic-Republicans in the state, Sullivan won with 51.5% of the vote versus Strong's 48.1%. And thus, he assumed office as governor, while Lincoln assumed office as lieutenant governor on May 29, 1807. Now, Sullivan and Lincoln would go on to win re-election in 1808, and they continued in their posts to support the efforts of the Jefferson administration. But they increasingly found themselves on the wrong side of public opinion in Massachusetts, as the issue of the Embargo Act decimated the state's shipping and merchant industry. In 1808, Sullivan increasingly suffered from ill health until finally, on December 10th, he passed away, which meant with his death, Levi Lincoln Sr. assumed office as governor of Massachusetts. Hmm. Unfortunately for Lincoln, his tenure in office would not be a successful one as Federalists controlled the state legislature and his unpopularity would only grow when, in response to a federal circular calling on support from state governors, Lincoln called out the Massachusetts state militia to enforce the Embargo Act. Mm. And so, in supporting Jefferson and in supporting the administration, Lincoln would personally lose out because he was denied a full term in office when he ran in 1809 against Federalist candidate Christopher Gore. Mm. Now, as a reflection of kind of the, the bipartisan support that Lincoln did share, even though he was a strong supporter of the Jefferson administration, Lincoln was asked to rejoin the governor's council when he left office as governor, and he served on that body in 1810 and 1811. However, Lincoln's health was starting to fade, and he suffered from poor eyesight, which could prove a problem for someone in government who had to read a lot of documents. 
Thus, when he was asked by President James Madison to accept a nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court in January 1811, Lincoln declined the honor. And so at this point, Lincoln retired his estate at Wooster and took up an interest in agriculture. And he soon gained a reputation for his agricultural experiments. And in 1818, he became the first president of the Wooster Agricultural Society. Also, he and his son, Levi Lincoln Jr., became founding members of the American Antiquarian Society in 1812. But on April 14, 1820, Levi Lincoln Sr. passed away in Wooster, and though his original burial site was not recorded, he was eventually reinterred in 1838 at the Wooster Rural Cemetery. Now, his wife Martha lived for a few more years, but ultimately passed away in 1828. And this is where we come back to his sons, because his mm-hmm. namesake, Levi Lincoln Jr., followed his father into politics, served in both houses of the Massachusetts State Legislature before becoming lieutenant governor and then governor of Massachusetts. But Junior's tenure as governor, serving from 1825 to 1834, was much more successful than his father's and is to date the longest consecutive tenure of any Massachusetts governor. Now, a handful of others have served for a longer period of time, but not consecutively. And Junior only left the governorship to take up a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives, where he would serve from 1834 to 1841. Now, the younger son, Enoch, did, like his older brother, get involved in politics as well. And he served in the U.S. House of Representatives before winning three one-year terms as governor of Maine. So this is a political dynasty that he started. He dominated the Northeast. For a long time, that whole family did. Absolutely. And shout out to naming his son Enoch. <laughs> I know, right? If you name somebody Enoch, they're not going to be like the 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 lukewarm kid that does okay. He's going to do something big. It might be be a governor. It might be start a cult. But it's going to be something that he's going to do it. He's going to do it well. He's never going to do anything just a little bit. He's going to go all in with a name like that. And he did. He dominated Maine. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of big names and doing big things, so I'm sure you as well as the listeners have been wondering this entire time, because there is this other guy that's named Lincoln that you might have heard of. Yeah. These Lincolns were actually connected to Abraham Lincoln through a common ancestor, Samuel Lincoln, who had settled in Hingham, Massachusetts at some point in the 17th century. So there is, it's a distant relation, but there is a relation between these Lincolns and President Lincoln. That's phenomenal. And that's a great, I think, cherry on the life of, of Levi Lincoln that he Absolutely. left. I think, a, 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 you know, his life itself was very distinguished and someone on, that I really had not heard of before today. Um, and just to see what he did and what his family did. And I think to leave that also with, you know, Perhaps our greatest president, Abraham Lincoln, being Absolutely. there, uh, connected to him also. Absolutely. And so with that, that is the life and legacy of Levi Lincoln Sr. So let's transition to kind of evaluating, you know, what what we've learned from this. And as always, we have our categories that we talk about, and that starts with the whole picture. So Mm -hmm. this round looks at the overall career and character of the cabinet member. And so with this, we can award up to 10 points maximum 
from each of us. So Steve, first impressions, what do you think of Lincoln's overall career? Overall, it's very impressive. He is, I don't want to denigrate him, but he's almost like a Forrest Gump in a way of the founding age that he's at a lot of very landmark events, uh, Marbury versus Madison, uh, Louisiana Purchase. I mean, those are, are two things that transformed our, our country. In addition, just with the, the whole thing with the, the Pirates of Tripoli, um, that, that, you know, his, I think, measured advice on everything that was done. He was not someone that was extreme in any way. Um, if anything, you criticize him maybe of being overcautious and uh, lawyerly, but just somebody overall very impressive, you know, at key points in history. And again, not doing anything, I think, that makes him, uh, that reflects really poorly on him. You see other guys like Burr who, you know, end up at key points in American history and seem to do the wrong thing most of the time. Um, and I wouldn't say that about Levi Lincoln. Absolutely. And I agree, you know, he... He does have some points where he kind of struggles, you know, the 1790s trying to get elected and being unsuccessful time and time again. But by and large, you see this kind of steady rise for him and you see him having a large impact being there for some of those key moments. You know, it's it's impressive. And ultimately, even though at the end with his governorship, it wasn't as successful as he would have liked, it's more a reflection of the times versus anything right. that he really did. You can't be a representative of the party who's really not, you know, if your party's doing bad nationally and do making policies that are affecting you at the local level, it's you're not going to overcome that. Nobody can. Yeah. So on a range of, you know, zero to 10, how many points do you think he gets for his career? I'm going to give him, I'm going to give him a seven. He's under an eight, uh, you know, that that let those last three digits, I think you want to say for someone who's truly exceptional. But I would say for the the things that he's done and the key points that he was at, I'd give him a seven. And I'm going to match you on that seven. I I agree. I think you know there are folks who had a larger impact overall, but his impact was not just in what he did directly, but also that behind the scenes being a political organizer on the ground. And that was important because we see, you know, New England was the hotbed of federalism and that starts to wane and decline. And I think we do have to give Lincoln props for being a part of that. I think he was mm -hmm. a leader in that. And I so agree. now we kind of zoom in, you know, this that's more of the broader picture is overall career. But with our go-get around, this zooms in on and focuses in on his impact as a cabinet member, you know, during his time in the cabinet. What was his impact? And so again, 10 points maximum from each of us. So Steve, what do you think about his tenure as attorney general? I'm going to go high on that. I'm actually going to go nine. And I would say uh, for his performance in Marbury versus Madison, that, you know, we were kind of being cheeky with the way he wouldn't answer things directly. But if he had gone in an extreme way with that, that could have changed the way that that, uh, that case unfolded. And I think that, again, his kind of measured scholarly, lawyerly way to look at things, um, he didn't go, he didn't throw Jefferson under the bus. Um, not that he would know what a bus was back then, but you know what I mean. There was just something that he could have gone in a way to make it about him, and he didn't. He was loyal 
And I give them a nine again for just, I'm very happy with the way Marbury versus Madison turned out. And I don't, and his actions, I think, helped ensure that that outcome. And again, I think I'm going to match you on this because, and especially the fact that he's attorney general, he does not have a department to run. He doesn't have anybody reporting to him. He doesn't have many official responsibilities, but you see that he is a key advisor. His opinion carries a large weight within the administration, even if Jefferson doesn't ultimately go with his opinion from time to time, he's still very much trusted and respected. And you don't, I mean, we've seen on the series already, you don't always get that and you don't mm-hmm. always see that. And even with folks that are brought in by the president, things don't go well. But in this case, it did, you know, and he proved himself to be a valuable member of the Jefferson administration. So I think high marks for him are justified. But now we've got to talk about, is there anything negative to say about him? And this is our hot seat round. So The hot seat. The hot seat. So this round discusses any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the cabinet member. And this doesn't have to be in his time in the cabinet. So this can be his entire life. And we can detract, so we can take away up to 10 points here. I got to say, I feel bad that I gave him a seven starting out because as we go more through what he did, seems like a decent guy. One of the benefits of him being up north is there's not the whole, we don't have to stumble too much over uh, whitewashing what, you know, what his involvement with slavery. And if anything, uh, he was very, you know, for the abolitionist cause by the way that he Work, worked in that case early in his career, the Nathan, Nathan Nathaniel Jennison case. Um, looks like he was a good husband, 10 kids. So, you know, take there was something something working right there with that. Um, and the children seemed to turn out pretty good. And he did also name one Enoch, which if anything was a risk, because again, that could really have sent, sent that kid off. If we had looked up Enoch Lincoln and found out that he had started a cult somewhere, or was involved with Children of the Corn or something like that, you know, it wouldn't be that far removed from anyone assuming that would happen. So he took a risk naming somebody Enoch, and that son still turned out pretty good. So I don't think, I don't see really anything to take away from him. Now, I will take away one point, just because with the Yazoo lands controversy, this, that he may have, had some undue influence, you know, and and we don't know for certain. And there's so much about the Yazoo controversy that, you know, we'll never know what was happening behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. But you also get the sense from Lincoln that he was a very practical person. He knew how politics had to work. And so I don't think that he would have necessarily thought it untoward to do, even though, you know, it was a scandal and it was something that was untoward and there were some dirty dealings there. So I'll go ahead and just take off one point just for that. And also, I mean, he was a lawyer, so there we go. (laughs) You know, that is a a good point too. And I don't want to be so glass half full on him. He still wasn't a, a, a lawyer. So I agree with you on that. Good call. So, but that will, that will take away one point that, you know, but again, overall, 
it just seems like he was a good guy and he he was a public servant. So I I think that's just covering anything that may have happened. But with yeah. that, he is now up to 31 points. Hmm. And so he is going pretty high here. Now, we award points as well for his tenure of office. Now, even though he was the interim Secretary of State for a little bit, that doesn't count, but he was also Attorney General at that time. So with that, and he served through Jefferson's full term, his first term, so we will give him four points here. He gets four points for his tenure of office. Unfortunately for him, he doesn't get any of our bonus points because in this series... Cabinet members can get bonus points for serving in more than one cabinet post, but the interim doesn't count. It has to be a full cabinet post. Serving in more than one administration, he only served under Jefferson, and he didn't become president. That was another Lincoln. Yeah. And so he ends up with a total of 35 points. It's but pretty we, good. Yeah. I mean, he has done he has done really well, and especially for an attorney general. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, we have one final question to ask. Okay. After all I've shared about Levi Lincoln's life and career and what we've discussed, do you think that he is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the Cabinet All-Stars? Now, for the Cabinet All-Stars, are if you end up becoming a president, do you get, are you not allowed to sit on the Cabinet? Does that keep you out if you eventually become a president? Not necessarily, okay. though the the one that we did have thus far, Jefferson, mm. ultimately did not make it. Mm. And it was based on his tenure as Secretary of State. Okay. I you know what? As much as I like Levi Lincoln, and I like him a lot, I almost feel like to put on an all-star cabinet is kind of I, I'm gonna say no. And this is why. I like him. I think he did good things. I think that he didn't gum up the works or make things worse. But greatness is something that is is very tough to achieve. And he was very, very good. But I think all, a lot of the things that he was involved with were going to happen regardless. Like if this, you know, to compare him to Monroe. Monroe was, I think, uh, much more key in the Louisiana Purchase happening. And we did see that, you know, uh, Lincoln's idea to kind of just expand the 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 borders you know what was shot down so where i i like him a lot i think he was a good guy um i don't think i'd put him on there he just wasn't exceptional and i agree with you there you know he he did serve a key function within the jefferson administration he served a key function in the democratic republican faction gaining power in new england but if it hadn't been him it could have been somebody else yeah and he didn't really, he was more of the behind-the-scenes person versus kind of being out there leading initiatives. When you think of a cabinet all-star, you you want somebody who is exceptional. And he was he was great for what he did, but I think, I don't know that we can call him exceptional. I'd agree with you on that. But I will say this about him. Where he passed away in 1820, and we're still talking about his accomplishments today. You know who his accomplishments we're not talking about? Who's that? Dwight Foster. <laughs> Levi Lincoln, he might not make the, the table, but he definitely has outshone 
Dwight Foster tremendously in my book. Absolutely. Lincoln is definitely kind of a slow burn kind of person. It took him a while, but nobody's talking about Dwight Foster anymore. So you at least went out there. I've got to say, I'm extremely impressed that you said Wooster correctly every time. Because if the tables have been turned, people would have to hear me say Worcester for an hour and a half. (laughs) And I just want to give you a shout out for your just nailing that pronunciation. Well, and I appreciate that. I That's one that's always in the back of my mind. And I've had a couple of words over the course of the podcast that mm-hmm. I learned later. And it's like, oh, but Wooster is one that, yes, I know. <laughs> well, I've got to get that right. And I've got to nail it every time. <laughs> and you did. And I'm very impressed. Well, and Steve, thank you so much for joining us for the special episode. It has been great to talk with you, and I hope you've enjoyed learning a bit more. You know, he's not Aaron Burr, but no, learning but more who, about Levi Lincoln. But he's not Dwight Foster, and maybe that's that's more important. And Jerry, I just want to thank you for having me, and I appreciate what you do out there uh, going through history in depth, putting the truth out there about these guys, taking the time and research. And I know the work you put into these episodes, too. I greatly appreciate the service you're, you're giving us as a, a country and a community. And I really mean that. Thank you very much. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. I'm glad to be able to share this with everybody, with the audience, with you. And likewise, thank you for helping us to explore the origins of words. You know, it's, it's something that we don't always think about, but it's so important. And there are so many fascinating stories about the words that we use every day in their evolution. It tells us so much about where we've been as a society, as a culture. And so thank you for the work you're doing. And I highly recommend that everybody go, once this episode is done, check out Speaksees, learn more about the words and the origins, how they they came to the present day. I'd also like to thank Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. Christian's editing skills are invaluable to freeing up more of my time to research, script, record, and promote the podcast while still knowing that the audio quality is going to be on point. If you'd like to enlist his services for your podcast or audio project, just go to his website, yourpodcastpal, that's all one word, dot com. And with that, we will end this episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another and take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, We'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. 
Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.